Thank you for... So I want to say thanks to Zach for covering, uh, covering the pulpit last week. And take, maybe this is an opportunity to tell you a little bit about what, uh, why Zach is on staff. If you're, if you're new to church here, uh, Zach has been on staff with us for about a, a couple of years and, and really our goal, uh, in Zach's position, we, we call it an internship. Um, what we want to do is take men who believe they are called to vocational ministry and we want to equip them to do that ministry. And so we believe that seminary is vital and important and necessary uh, to be an ordained pastor. But we also believe that seminary doesn't do the whole job, right? If, you, uh, if you've spent any time in a classroom, particularly advanced education, getting a degree, you'd know... Uh, that, that that degree, that training doesn't prepare you for everything you're going to face in your profession. And so uh, we want to we want to do both. Right. We're, and we're kind of building the plane as we fly it. Um, so Zach's kind of our guinea pig on this. But just so that you have an idea, what we're trying to do is get Zach trained in a variety of areas. And so, yes, he primarily works with youth, but he is not our youth director. We don't have one of those. We have a pastoral intern. Uh, and so while he primarily works with youth, he's also, he also visits hospitals and homes, uh, trying to get as much, he's going to be preaching probably about once a month. And so just so you have an idea of what to, uh, what to expect and what we're doing, um, with Zach in that position, uh, and so that you know that that is, um, so that you know that's what, that's where kind of we are as a church. Uh, that's our heart, is to prepare men for ministry. Uh, so even as we seek to be a disciple-making church, we also want to, we also want to, uh, prepare men to go on and pastor churches. And so that's a, that's an opportunity for you, uh, as Grace Fellowship Church, right? If you think about it this way, we, you get the opportunity to train a future pastor. Not just big old Oak Mountain Prez or big old Briarwood Prez in Birmingham, right? They're doing their thing. But little old Grace Fellowship Church in Clanton, Alabama has the opportunity and the challenge uh, and the blessing of preparing someone else for pastoral ministry, right? Getting a man ready to be a pastor. Uh, so when you see Zach in the pulpit or uh, out and about in town or as he's teaching Sunday school, whatever roles you see him as, that, that's exactly what we are tasking Zach with doing. I want you to encourage him in that task. Um, and wherever, and that includes whatever gaps I may be missing, um, let's shore them up, right? This is our, this is our project and our ministry as a church together. So just to let you know, that's, uh, that's where things are with Zach. We've been working our way through, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, this letter that Paul sent to this troubled church in Corinth. And what we're doing, the way that we're reading this letter and seeing this letter is we're asking, we're, we're answering the question, what does it mean to be a church shaped by the good news of what Jesus has done? What does it mean to be a community shaped around Jesus, right? Shaped around His cross. How do, what does that mean for us in our lives together? And, and the trick 
with 1 Corinthians uh, is it's a difficult letter, right? If you're a Christian and you're kind of having one of those self-pity moments where you just think, man, I am terrible at this thing called the Christian life. Just read 1 Corinthians. You'll feel so much better about yourself, right? Um, if you don't think you're knocking it down, just read 1 Corinthians and you'll realize you're far better than... Uh, hopefully, you'll realize you're far better than you thought you were. Um, maybe you won't. Uh, but we're gonna, so we're using this letter to show how the gospel impacts areas of our life. And the place that Paul starts, so I'm just kind of doing this to summarize where we've been. Uh, the place that Paul starts is these factions, these divisions in the church. This church is separating into groups around uh, popular leaders, right? So you've got people in the church who are saying, I'm with Paul and I'm with Apollos, right? Uh, so, you know, put the name of your favorite celebrity preacher in there, right? I'm with Tim Keller. I'm with John MacArthur. Whoever it is that you listen to, this church is separating along those party lines. And Paul says, stop. And the way that he says stop is he points them back to the cross. He points them back to what Jesus has done and says, no, 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 this is not how the church works. He points them back to the gospel, right? They're boasting in certain leaders. I was told to Google boast because it has a really good definition. Uh, so to boast, right, is to talk with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. That's, what ha- that's what's happening in Corinth. Paul, on the other hand, says this in 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. He says, let, no- let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so... What we're seeing in Corinth is the result of pride. That's what it comes down to. Pride is the problem in Corinth. Because pride boasts about what I can do, what I can accomplish, or it lines up behind what others can accomplish. I'm with so-and-so. I'm with Kevin. He's a really gifted preacher. Or I'm with Paul. He's a really gifted shepherd, right? They're lining up behind others and boasting in their strengths. And Paul counters that pride with the cross. Paul counters pride with the cross because the cross shows that a person is powerless to save herself. Right? The cross shows that a person uh, cannot save themselves through strength or intellect. The cross shows that only God can save a person. Think about this. What is... What is the greatest enemy of human wisdom? What is the greatest enemy of the human intellect and human strength? What is the one thing that despite all of your striving, all of your earning, all of your working, you cannot evade? Death. Death is the end of human wisdom and intellect. Whatever else you may build in life, whatever else you may accomplish, not one of us gets to escape that. Right? So here's where the wisdom of God comes in. Here's where the beauty of the gospel comes in. God uses death to bring life. Where human wisdom and intellect fail, God's wisdom and strength picks up. 
No amount of working or striving or thinking will ever last one extra second. God uses death to bring life. He uses the cross to save. And that, uh, that is why Paul's message of the cross counters human pride. So God alone gets the glory. And then what we saw last week is that apart, apart from God's work through the Spirit, I cannot receive this upside-down version of wisdom, right? I cannot receive God's upside-down, cross-shaped wisdom. It looks foolish to me. I won't receive it unless the Holy Spirit works in my life. And so that brings us to this point now in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me pray for us and then we'll read it together. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. Holy Spirit, would you use it to draw your people to yourself, to rescue sinners from sin, to bring those who are lost in darkness into the light? God, would you change us and transform us by the power of your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is... Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you know that you are God's temple 
and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You're being childish. You may have said that at some point in your life. If you're a parent, you most certainly have said it. It's probably been said to you, right? I can almost guarantee that you certainly have thought it. If you're not a parent, probably about a coworker, maybe, uh, or about a friend, Maybe about your spouse, if you're married, you're being childish. So there's clearly a scale by which we judge mature behavior, right? All of us kind of have built into our heads what it means for a person, where, like where we look at a person's age and we compare or contrast that with their behavior and say, hmm, one of these does not match, Right? You are clearly not acting your age. What does that look like? What are the, just, just think maybe to the last time you said it or thought it. What does it look like when you thought, gosh, that, that person's really acting immature, right? They're really acting childish. What was the scale? What sort of behavior did you see? That's what Paul is doing here. That's what he's kind of beginning to do is he, um, continues to work on the Corinthian pride as he continues to delve into why they're, they're, they're causing schisms and splits in the church. He says, you're being babies in Christ, right? We might have shamed our children before, like you're acting like a baby. Stop it, right? Um, Paul, he's not shaming them, but he is saying, you're really not nearly as far along as you ought to be. And so Paul's teaching us a few things about maturity, three things that we're going to see in this passage. The first, true maturity is measured by humility. So go ahead and kind of take stock, like what, are, what is the standard of maturity in your mind, right? If you were going to say, even spiritual maturity, if you're a Christian and you say, oh, a spiritually mature person is blank, okay? Um, true, what we're hearing Paul say is that true maturity, real maturity, spiritual maturity is measured by humility. And we're going to unpack that. True humility, second, true humility comes from understanding yourself in relation to Jesus. So where do I fit in to Jesus's, uh, Jesus's kingdom, Jesus's plan? That's, as I begin to understand that, I begin to grasp true humility. And then finally, Paul says a word about true wisdom. And that true wisdom comes when we become fools for Christ. 
and we'll unpack that. Let's talk about this first thing. True maturity is measured by humility. Look again at what he says in verse 1. He says, I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as literally fleshy people. Fleshy people. Uh, what does he, what does he mean, spiritual versus fleshly? Now, last week, Zach probably covered this idea of spiritual versus natural. And what Paul said, if you look just up a few verses in chapter 2, verse 14, he says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So, when he talks about spiritual versus natural, he means believing versus unbelieving. Here, he introduces a different category, right? He's not talking about unbelievers. He's saying, he's saying spiritual versus fleshly people, right? What he means by that is not that they're not unbelievers, uh, but they're walking like unbelievers, right? Uh, he says, you're walking like you are of the flesh. You are being merely human. So, he means, what he's saying is, you are not living according to the values you say you believe. You are not living according to the values you say you believe. You are living and loving and communicating by human standards. You're using cultural standards to do life together in the church. You're using cultural standards rather than God's standards. In short, I think I've said this before, there is more of Corinth in the church than Christ. They are living more according to the values of their neighbors rather than their king. More according to the values of their city than the kingdom of heaven. They're looking at the way that their neighbors live, at the way that their neighbors treat each other, and they have brought that into the church community. And so, Paul calls them infants. He says, you were infants when I got here. Right? And I approached you as infants, right? I, I fed you with milk. I just gave, I gave you the basics. I didn't get very complicated, right? Um, I gave you the basics of salvation in Jesus. But here we are, uh, a couple of years later, and I think Paul spent a year and a half, and this is maybe a, uh, two years after that, so let's say a period of three to five years after this, Paul says, and you're still there. You're still babes in Christ. Now, it's important that he says in Christ, because that means they are believers. They're just not living like believers. They're immature believers. How can he tell? What is it that demonstrates their immaturity? Look at verse 3. He says, While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Their, their jealousy and their strife prove their immaturity. Or we could put it, or we could put it a different way. Their lack of humility and their lack of love demonstrate their immaturity. They're living more like Corinthians than Christians. Now, what is it that causes jealousy? What is it that causes strife? Is it not pride? Let's think about it for a second. Jealousy 
surfaces. Well, when does jealousy surface in your life? In mine, it surfaces when my neighbor or my friend gets the credit that I think I deserve. Right? In my pride, I think I deserve better. I deserve to be recognized, and I'm not. And so pride makes me jealous. I think I deserve better. I think I've earned more. And so I become envious of my neighbor. I become jealous. What about strife? Quarrels, wrangling. I love that word, wrangling. Um, we had I worked at a summer camp, and we... Uh, we used horses, and so the, the folks who worked with the horses were called the wranglers. I don't know how much wrangling they actually had to do, but uh, if you met our horses, our temperamental, biting-prone horses, they probably had to do a fair bit of wrangling, right? Um, what causes wrangling? What causes strife, quarrels? Isn't it when one group is disgruntled and they wrestle for power against another? Again, this idea of pride, that we as a group are not getting what we deserve. And so we quarrel with one another. Now let's see if we can tie that to immaturity. What behavior is it, uh, maybe seen in children, that we would say is the height of childishness? What thing do kids do that we would say demonstrates most clearly their childishness. Is it not the temper tantrum? Right? That, like, that is probably the moment more than any other when a child's immaturity is on display, right? When they are pitching a fit in the living room floor because they did not get their way. They deserve better than what you're giving them, right? They deserve, uh, to play the we. Right? They deserve, uh, to get the cookie. Whatever it is, right? They're, they're throwing a temper tantrum and we would say, man, like we don't, no one in this room in their right mind would look at a child throwing a temper tantrum and go, that's maturity on display right there. They know how to control themselves, clearly, right? No, right? They're stomping their fists and they're gritting their teeth and we'd say, you're being childish. Now, I think uh, a few of us probably know a thing or two in about an, about adult temper tantrums, don't we? All right? When we stomp our feet and grit our teeth, now maybe we don't pitch a fit quite like our kids do, but we still have, we still throw temper tantrums, don't we? Uh, when we stomp our feet, when we, when we seek to manipulate people by our silence, yeah? Passive-aggressive tones, when we just go vent on Facebook, right? Uh, we know a thing or two about immaturity and childishness, don't we? So, if pride reveals immaturity, if that's what's happening in the Corinthian church, then, then what does maturity look like? Well, Paul's about to give us a very lengthy illustration of that, but I would capture it in one word, humility. Not thinking more highly of myself than I ought. Or as Paul puts it in this letter, not boasting in men. Putting my boast in its proper place, which is with Jesus and not with myself. That is humility. 
Now, I want you to notice uh, what Paul does not say is a sign of maturity. Right? So let's go back. I ask you to think, okay, when you, when you think spiritual maturity is blank, I wonder what you put in that category. Uh, for many of us, we might think spiritual maturity is biblical knowledge. You know, Paul doesn't even talk about knowledge. Doesn't talk about biblical knowledge. Doesn't talk about how well you understand the truth. How well you understand doctrine. It's interesting. You can actually have abundant biblical and doctrinal knowledge, but still be acting in a merely human way. You can know lots of things about the Bible. But I would argue that if humility and love which are the values of the gospel, don't characterize my life, then I don't have the grasp on the Bible or doctrine that I think I do. Knowledge is not always a sign of maturity. In fact, James one twenty two says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And in this case, being a doer means that I aim to put down jealousy and strife rather then give vent to it, rather than cause it. So, maturity is measured not by how much knowledge I have, or even how old I am. Maturity is measured by my humility. Do I treat my brothers and sisters with love and humility, or am I constantly jealous and envious, stirring up strife? If that is true, then Paul says, I'm still a babe in Christ. I'm still an infant in Christ. So, how do we learn humility? What, what does Paul tell us is a good way to learn humility? Well, he gives us a, a long explanation of how he understands himself in relation to Jesus. If you want to have a true humility, you have to kind of know your role. Remember the rock from... WWF, now something else, but, right, know your role, okay? Uh, that's what Paul, in essence, is saying. If you want to understand humility, you need to know your role in relation to Jesus. Let's see how he does this. Because they're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Paul says in verse 5, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Right? What... What are you doing? Who are you rallying behind? What are these people? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. That's it. Servants. They're not the masters of the house. They work for him. Paul's implication, don't rally around the servants. Rally around the master. I'm just a servant through whom you believed. You didn't believe in Paul. You didn't believe in Apollos. You believed in Jesus through my work. So understand where you fit in. He illustrates this in two ways. He uses a farming illustration and he uses a building illustration. Look at verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. What's Paul saying? Each servant has an important role, but only God is the one who gives the growth. Every, any, anybody who's ever tried to plant 
anything understands that your control over what comes out of the ground is actually fairly limited, right? In the case of some, it's more limited than in others, right? Especially at our house, uh, our ability, we, we actually do the exact opposite of what there's something about water and sun that we don't really do much with. But, um, right, every good farmer knows that you can plant and you can water, but God has to give the growth, right? Um, now, imagine imagine that uh, when you bit into a peach, right? When you, when you bite into a peach, do you say, man, that planter really put that tree in the ground? Of course not. Right? Like that, that doesn't even come into mind. And so the planter is important, and the person who watered it is important. They have a role to play, but they're not the focus. Only God gives the growth. What's Paul saying? We don't make the church grow. God does that. We use our gifts as God has assigned to us. But God is the one who must give the growth. He who plants and he who waters are nothing. They're field hands. They don't take any credit for themselves. They work hard and they go home. They get their wages and that's that. Put your allegiance in the right place. Put it behind God who gives the growth, not behind the field hand. Right? He says, going on in verse 8... He who plants and he who waters are one. They work for the same purpose. They both work to the same end. Can you imagine a farm uh, where the guy who's pruning the limbs gloats over the guy who sprays the pesticide? How would you look at how would you look at those people, right? If you if you were like going to a demonstration farm and you saw the guy who's pruning the limbs off the peach trees, like gloating and boasting over the guy who was pray, spraying the pesticide, like eh, I'm better than you are. Like, what would you say about those people? You're being you're being childish, right? And yeah, that's what they're doing in the Corinthian church. And Paul's saying, hey guys, we're on the same team. We are one. We work to the same end. But we're still just workers in the field. Don't look at us. Don't make much of us. Don't make much of our gifts. Look at God. Make much of Him. Make much of His gifts. So that's the uh, farming illustration. And then he switches over to a building illustration. Verse 9. You are God's field, God's building. And according to the grace of God given to me... Like a wise chief architect, I laid a foundation. Right? So Paul now kind of switches over and he points out that he's the one who laid the foundation for the church. Now he's not taking credit for that. He says, by God's grace. Right? By the grace given to me, I laid the foundation. So what is it that makes him wise? Well, he laid the right foundation. He laid the foundation of the cross. He has rooted this church not in his personality, but in Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so Paul says, I've, I've laid the foundation of Jesus, the only one you can lay. Someone else is coming along and they're building on it. Now Paul has kind of a warning for them. If you're going to build on that foundation, take care, right? Take care that you build on the right foundation. Don't try to lay a new one. 
Don't try to lay any other foundation than Jesus. A church is not built on anything other than Jesus Christ. If you're going to build on that foundation, you have to stay in the vein of Jesus Christ. What might it look like to build a church on a different foundation? What might it look like to depart from the foundation of Jesus? Well, one example is maybe a church built on the personality of its pastor. A church that has, be, that has come to be identified with a certain personality, a certain set of gifts. What happens when that person dies? What happens when that person falls? What happens when that person moves on? If a church has become rooted and built on his personality and his gifts, then the church will suffer and maybe even split. The church is meant to be built on Jesus and Jesus alone. Every pastor, every elder, every church member is just a field hand. We're just working for the master, right? And so we don't want to rally around gifted individuals. A church built on traditions. A church built on moralism. We don't want to build on anything other than Jesus. Because anything other than Jesus is doomed to failure. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So, Paul says, I laid the foundation. Take care how you build on it. And then he goes on, he talks about, he says, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, so the quality of your work will be revealed, right? The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, will reveal it with fire. If your work survives, so if you built with the precious things, you've done well. If you've built with wood, hay, or straw, you will suffer loss. But he goes on to say, right, if anyone's work is burned up, verse 15, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul says, listen, there is, there is a reality of quality work. If you build correctly and you build well, there is reward. And now I think he's talking, maybe not to the average church member, I believe he's talking to, to, to pastors and teachers, right? That if you build well, if you build on the foundation of Jesus well, then you, there is a reward, there is a good job, job well done. If you do not, then it's possible your work will be lost. You won't be lost. He won't lose his salvation. That comes to us by grace alone. It's based on the finished work of Christ. It cannot be done away with. But he will suffer loss. Something like maybe, maybe suffering the loss of a house fire. You escape, but none of your possessions do. I'm not super clear on all that that means, what those rewards look like. Uh, Paul isn't clear. But what is clear is that there is a return for solid work. And so, again, that's not earned. That's not, that's not a salvation issue. Right? These are, these are, these are rewards post-salvation. 
But this is what he's building to. Look in verse 16. He says, Don't you know that you're God's temple? The you there is plural. Don't you all know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? In the ancient world, you didn't build temples out of wood, hay, and straw. That's what you built your house out of. Temples were built out of gold, silver, precious stones. Paul's saying what we're building here, God's building, is a temple. And this is pretty radical. Uh, because in Paul's day, a temple was a place. It was a building where you went to worship. The God that you were worshiping there. That's where the God stayed. But what's radical about what Paul is saying is you're not a, that, that God's Spirit doesn't dwell in a building anymore. It dwells in a people. You, church, are God's temple. Why? Because God dwells in you. The same that He dwelt in the holy place in Jerusalem before Jesus came, so now He dwells in you. Therefore, do not destroy the temple. How do we destroy it? How are they destroying the temple? Disunity. Fighting. Pride. Envy. Someone in the church is fostering division. And Paul looks at them through this letter and says, you better stop. If you tear apart the church, if you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. That is a stern warning. And it tells us just how, how vile disunity is to the church. We treat it as maybe a light thing sometimes, an unimportant thing. But it tells us, it tells us this truth. God's church is precious to Him. It is His temple. We are His people. And if we are careless with it, if we in fact aim to destroy it, then we must watch out. For we are now attacking the apple of God's eye. And he will not respond lightly to that. Understanding our place is how we learn true humility. Paul warns them about the temple. And then he, he kind of changes topic and summarizes some of what he said so far. Verse, six, verse 18 He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. So true wisdom comes when we become fools for Christ. Paul goes back to this wisdom foolishness thing that he'd been doing in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, where he says the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. He says, don't deceive yourselves. Don't, don't blind yourselves. If you think you're really wise in this age, repent. And realize that, and instead, seek God's wisdom. For God's wisdom is better than the world's. How do we do that? How do we embrace God's wisdom, His upside down, or maybe we should say right side up, cross-shaped wisdom? How do we look at the cross and say, that's the way to life? Paul says this at the end. He says in verse 21, Let no one boast in men. Why? 
Because it's a bad idea? Maybe. But that's not what he says. He says, let no one boast in men because all things are yours. Now think about that. Why do we boast? Why do we clamor? Why do we scrape? Is it not because we're trying to gain something? Is it not because we're trying to earn something? A reputation, a good standing, applause. Is that not why we boast in men? How do we counter that? What does Paul say? What is the hope that we have? He says, don't boast in men because all things are yours. All things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they all belong to you. Every good teacher. You don't have to rally behind one. They're all yours. Present, future, all of life. Everything belongs to you. There's nothing to scrape for. There's nothing to clamor for. There's no reason to boast. Christ has given you everything. Church, if we would believe that, oh, how free we would be. Nothing to lose. And nothing we have to gain. All is yours. Everything is yours in Christ. Christ is God's. Right? We rest secure in God alone. Let no one boast in men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. There's no need to boast in men because there's nothing to gain by it. We have everything that we need and more than we could ever possibly imagine. All of it in Christ. All of it. We are free to live and follow Him because He has given us everything that we need. That is the hope of the cross. That is the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of this table. When we come in a few minutes to take communion... We come recognizing that the bread is Jesus' body, that the juice is Jesus' blood. And what we're saying is, I identify with that. I am one with Jesus through that. When you take communion, you are saying, I belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to me. And because that's true, I'm free. There's no room left for boasting. There's no need for it. I am free. So I want you to think about that as we come to the table. Because that's the message of the table, it's the message of the gospel that I am Jesus's and he is mine. If you are not in Jesus, then the table is not for you. If you have not yet made a profession of faith in Christ, the table is not for you. Communion is for... Believers, those who have been baptized, those who have made a profession of faith in Christ, that is who communion is for. And yet, if you are outside of Christ this morning, if you have not made Christ your hope and your boast, if you are not boasting in Christ this morning, I invite you to Him. I invite you to believe in Him and make Him your boast and your glory The cross is the way to glory. Believe on that. Let's pray. God in heaven, as we come to the table, we pray that you would take your word 
And by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take this bread and this juice and that you would make them profitable for us. God, that you would, um, by the spiritual and mysterious purpose uh, of your own will, make these elements, this common bread, this common juice, fit for that spiritual purpose you have intended. Nourish us, Lord. Equip us for the journey. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.